it's wonderful to see how much progress we've made just over the last decades uh, on the environmental science and how much further we are now in understanding lots of environmental impacts. If 30 years ago, if you said that companies would routinely be able to publish carbon footprints of their own operations and their entire supply chain, I think people would probably start laughing. Manufacturers are under the gun to reduce their environmental impacts. They could be greenhouse emissions into the atmosphere or toxic chemicals that end up in the water. So if you run a factory or any industrial operation, the right thing to do is reduce your carbon footprint and stop polluting the water. That sounds right. But it turns out that's not all there is to it. Professor Charles Corbett says, in addition to cutting one chemical or another, you'd also better consider what the alternatives are, or you just might face unintended consequences, and they could be detrimental. I'm Warren Olney, and Professor Corbett joins me on UCLA Anderson's podcast, How the World Works. Corbett is a professor of managing both operations and the environment at UCLA Anderson School of Management. Welcome aboard. Warren, uh, thank you very much. It's great to have a chance to, to, to chat with you. So you're asking about this notion of informed substitution and alternatives assessment. Right, that sometimes you might think that I'm going to make an improvement, uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions or something else, but you could very well end up accidentally doing something worse than what you had before. So there is an emerging field which is called alternatives assessment. And the, the thought behind that is really that before you make any changes, uh, let's look at the alternatives first carefully and then try to figure out which of those alternatives actually would be best. So what would happen in the past typically is right, there's all kinds of chemicals and practices out there. And then over time, we learn about what might actually be harmful. And then if something really turns out to be too damaging, well, then regulators step in and they want to ban it. There's no typical clear guidance at that point about what else to use instead. So there's a number of examples where we've had what you would call a regrettable substitution. So just some examples are lead and gasoline is not desirable. It's a neurotoxin. And when that was phased out, in some instances, MBTE was used instead, which is actually very problematic because it's an aquatic toxin. When you add this to fuels in, in boats, for instance, and it starts leaking into the lakes, it actually causes fairly severe aquatic toxicity in marine environments. So just getting rid of lead without thinking about what the substitutes were turned out not to be that good. And another examples are when we discovered that CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, were bad for the ozone layer. Uh, so th these are refrigerants, basically. So this is what used to be in the air conditioning system, refrigerators, etc. And when they were banned because they were contributing to this massive hole in the ozone layer, they often ended up being replaced by uh, what's called HCFCs, so hydrofluorocarbons, which are actually a greenhouse gas. So they were as bad or worse than what we had before. So, so if you think about it, all of us collectively are part of this, this massive ongoing set of experiments. And I don't mean that in any sense that there's like a grand evil conspiracy, but there's just lots of chemicals and substances out there that we're all being exposed to. And over time, we learn about the effects of these. Over the last couple of decades, even, there's been more and more movement towards trying to prevent these kinds of regrettable substitutions. And there's regulations uh, in Europe, here in California and elsewhere that essentially require that if you're going to substitute a chemical that's about to be banned with something else, you at least have to do a careful analysis of what are all the possible alternatives and then ideally pick something better. The regulations are fairly open 
about exactly how you do that analysis or how you make that choice. Uh, but at least it's a big step forwards already in terms of mapping out what the alternatives are rather than just jumping on what might be the easiest or most obvious candidate. It seems such an obvious thing to talk about. Uh, if you make a substitution, you ought to be concerned about what the consequences might be. So I'm surprised that it has taken apparently a long time to make that a required part of the process. Yep, you would think so. And a lot of things, of course, are in the world of sustainability, they feel like common sense once you start looking at it. And I agree, this is one of those. Now, it's not that this notion of regrettable substitution and identifying alternatives is brand new. I mean, this has been in the works for quite some time. But what you often run into is the devil is in the details of many of these things. So it's a big step forward to say you have to look at the alternatives. But then what? So now you have, say, seven possible substitutions or alternatives for something that you're about to get rid of. How do you now actually make a choice between those? And this is going to involve incredibly difficult trade-offs between, say, greenhouse gas emissions, aquatoxicity, neurotoxicity, exposing workers, economic cost. I mean, and these are fundamentally difficult choices. And the regulations don't say, and couldn't probably say, how you have to actually make that choice. Any particular companies that have run afoul of this problem? I wouldn't necessarily think of it in terms of companies running afoul of it. It's more, well, if you're a company making any one of these particular substances and that thing is about to be banned, it's very natural that you then look at what else do I have in my portfolio and can I use one of those as a substitution? That's, I think, a natural choice. So, so what those companies are now being asked to do is say, hey, wait a minute, before you make a choice like that, don't just jump to the thing that's chemically closest but not yet banned. <laughs> Let's take a, a more careful and comprehensive look. And maybe, in fact, you don't need the chemical at all. Maybe there's other approaches that would work. When you say that it's very difficult to make choices, it seems to me you're talking about making things better. And it's not always easy to figure out what's better. You're absolutely right. And, and so, so you're fundamentally dealing with difficult trade-offs, and, and you could almost say almost impossible trade-offs. But in the end, these choices are going to be made by humans, right? whether it's people and companies deciding what chemical to substitute, whether it's regulators, whether it's us as consumers deciding that we're going to stop buying some products and, and switch to something else. So in the end, right, all of these trade-offs are going to be made by humans, individual humans or groups of humans. And what I find is that we're making huge progress in the science of sustainability in trying to figure out what are the various environmental and to some extent social impacts of many of these different choices. But what we're not yet very good at is then figuring out how the humans use that information. That's, uh, I think, a fascinating and very open area is once you start combining the very rapidly growing and well-developing field of science of sustainability, and you start combining that now with what we know from behavioral science, right, how humans respond to different decision contexts, there's still a lot to be done there. And a lot of the things that we'll talk about are really in that intersection. If you give people more formal decision support tools, will they end up making better decisions? So we gave them a case study, a real case study, but then we made up various hypothetical versions of that. And we asked them to use different kinds of decision approaches to then figure out what would be the best alternative in each of these cases. So, so we asked them just to reason themselves through the way they normally would to come up with a, with a substitute. And then we gave them some more formal methods as individuals and as groups. Uh, and the specific context that we use is actually one that's very relevant here locally in, in, in Los Angeles. It was the, the anti-fouling paint on boats. 
And now I'm by no means an expert on boating, but there's all kinds of marine organisms that like to stick to the hull of a boat. And that, now that slows the boat down. It also means that if a boat goes from one water into a different watershed, it might be carrying organisms that you don't want in that other watershed. So there's lots of reasons why you want to prevent organisms from sticking to the hull of a boat. And the traditional approach of doing that is by applying some copper-based paint to the hull, which then reduces the extent to which these marine organisms uh, attach themselves to the hull. But the problem is that copper then ends up entering the water, partly through leaching, and it's whenever you clean the hull, of course, some of that copper leaks off. And copper is toxic right, for aquatic life. So, and this is the real case study. So then the question is, instead of using copper-based paint, what else could you do? And, and there's all kinds of other approaches. So you could look for other kinds of paint that might be biocidal, so that would actually also prevent organisms from attaching. But it, you could also try to make the hull more slippery. So it's not a, a biocidal agent, but it's, it's a very different approach. If you ask people then between a range of different biocidal and non-biocidal options, which is best? Uh, they're making choices again between what's important, aquatoxicity, neurotoxicity, economic cost, duration. We asked these, uh, these individuals. So these were a mix of people who were, some people working in manufacturing, some people working in nonprofit organizations who advise on these kinds of things, and some people working in several different regulatory agencies. But all of them so actively involved in these kinds of choices from a professional context. Boat owners would have been interested because that's an important stakeholder group that we didn't have. So we asked them to make these kinds of different decision methods and then try to find out which method worked better. And to your point earlier, it's not obvious what constitutes a better decision. So we did find that if they go through a more formal process, which uh, is some software tools, some more formal structuring of the problem, they did understand the problem better. So they had a better understanding of what are the trade-offs involved. And they quite often felt that whatever the outcome at the end was, it was more transparent, it might be easier to communicate. But they were not necessarily more satisfied with the outcome. It raises a question, indeed, of if, if you're going to try to help stakeholders make better decisions, we need to be very careful with what do we even think is a better decision, because we don't have a good benchmark for that yet. Well, if you're the maker of the copper paint, obviously you're not satisfied. Absolutely. So if you take it as a given that the original substance is going to be substituted away, right, then that's already a given. But you're right, if you're the maker of the copper paint and one of the alternatives happens to be something else that you also make, then you're probably going to prefer that. But it could well be that fundamentally changing the, the slipperiness of the hull, which is a totally different approach that might actually end up being better. The owner of a company selling a product, and one thing will be better. If you're the, the person in the marina actually applying this, then something else will be better. And if you're a regulator who's concerned about the quality of water, something else will be better. So there's no single best option. But what we probably want to avoid is that these kinds of choices end up being made for accidental or random reasons. So in, in that experimental workshop that we did, for instance, we found that human factors uh, probably played as much of a role in the outcomes as the actual information and the decision support system. So something very simple such as, were people working on this as a group or individually uh, has a big impact on what outcome they actually chose and how satisfied they were, more than the choice of the actual decision support method itself. That again suggests that if we're trying to make these decisions better, we need to be very mindful of the human and behavioral context in which these decisions are going to be made. If there are alternatives, there's always somebody who's got a stake in it. 
that's a, a very well-documented tendency. And again, many of these things are, are well-known in the world of behavioral science. So you're right, there's a very well-documented sequencing effect. It's, it's found that, um, and you won't be surprised, but if you give uh, voters a ballot with lots and lots of names on it, the name that's listed first is going to be chosen more often just because it's first, right? controlling for many other things. And we found the same thing earlier, looking in the context of energy efficiency. Uh, you think that energy efficiency is a very objective thing. It's, it's, uh, you, you invest a certain amount of money to make a certain industrial process more energy efficient, and then because it's energy efficient, you save money over time. In all the recommendations that we looked at as part of a large database from the Department of Energy, all these recommendations were, in principle, profitable, some faster than others. But controlling for everything else, right? whatever the consultants happened to list first was chosen much more often than what was listed later, almost regardless of whether it was actually objectively better or not. Is there a tendency to just choose the first thing that comes along? It could be. Right? So psychologists would probably have much better answers to what is the deeper cognitive psychology mechanism for this. But I don't know if it's impatient so much as busy. And this is something that you constantly run into when you're trying to make processes more sustainable. In many settings, we actually know what to do. It's not that we can solve all problems today. But a lot of things we actually do have the answers to. Energy efficiency is one, but there's many others. It's just that actually doing it takes time. It takes a bit of thought. Sometimes it takes money, but not always. Uh, most of us who actually can make these changes are just too busy to think about what to do. So yeah, if you're given a list of energy efficiency recommendations, you might have lots of good intentions, but you don't have time to look at all six of them in detail. And you say, well, the first two look fine. Let's just start there. Are there instances where making environmental improvements actually have economic benefits? Very often, um, certainly not always the case, because you can you can always find uh, instances where uh, removing yet another ton of CO2 would, would genuinely be costly. But there's there's still many more opportunities where reducing emissions actually would save money. So that's why one of the best things that many organizations can do is just mapping their processes and trying to understand what they currently do. And as soon as you see what's happening, as soon as you document what the emissions are in the supply chain, lots of opportunities already become clear almost immediately. And just know one example of that is when carbon footprinting started to become a big topic and, and Walmart, among others, started doing that, they suddenly found that there were actually ways of saving money by making some changes in the way that the trucks operated. And now Walmart is famous for being incredibly good at finding opportunities to save money. But until they started asking questions about carbon footprint, this one had somehow slipped through the cracks. So if, if even Walmart can find opportunities to save money by doing carbon footprinting, then you can be pretty sure every other organization still has opportunities as well. What about the supply chain and the implications of making a change uh, in one thing or another? Does it have implications that you might not consider simply because they're down the supply chain someplace in one direction or another where uh, changes are going to uh, have an impact? It certainly does. And that's, again, something where once you understand better how supply chains really work, you begin to realize that many things that happen in supply chains and many outcomes are not determined by one single firm, but by the joint interactions of many firms. So if retailers get better at, for instance, at planning, then they don't have to do as many last-minute rush orders. So then you don't need as much air shipment and trucks. You can rely more on sea and rail. 
if there's not that many rush orders, then the firms further upstream and doing manufacturing can have more stable production schedules and don't have to have as many peaks and overtime, which tend to be uh, much worse in terms of emissions. So all of these firms in the supply chain really have to work together to get the kinds of emissions reductions that we want. It's not just pointing at one firm and saying, you need to do this. A lot of this is the result of regulations of one kind or another. Are the regulators able to get the various components together and make the firms come together in order to make choices, or do they have to wait and let the firms do that on their own? It's probably a bit of both. By now, there's certainly a desperate need for probably a stronger regulatory approach, as given the urgency of climate change. It's not going to be solved completely by free market forces. But uh, regulators, of course, also often like to use incentives. And in many settings, incentives, as opposed to strict regulations, can work better. In many settings, certainly not all. Economic incentives also run into limitations because of this observation that the emissions that come out of a supply chain are the result of joint decisions and not individual decisions. So, So let me give you an analogy. If you have two students taking a four-unit course and their grade is going to be based on a group project that they do jointly, and the two students' skills are very complementary, so one is great at doing analysis and the other one is very good at doing writing. Now, if the analytical student doesn't do any analysis, right, then the good writer has nothing to write about, so they're not going to do very well. And at the same time, if the analytical student does a great analysis, but the writer doesn't do much writing, uh, they're not going to do well either. So the value of their joint project depends very much on both of their inputs together. So if it's a four-unit course, they'll figure out how much work should they both put into this. And then at the end, they'll get their grade, and they'll both get four units worth of credit. But now, if you imagine that we as an instructor were to say, you know what, you did it together, so you have to split those four units between you. Now, both of these students are suddenly going to say, wait a minute, if I only get two units, I'm going to work less hard. You don't give them the right incentive to work as hard as they actually both would have liked to. And in teaching, of course, we don't do that. They both get the full four units. But now if you switch to the world of carbon credits and carbon taxes and so on, here, that is exactly what we do. Because in carbon markets, we don't want double counting of carbon emissions or carbon credits. So essentially, when you have multiple firms and they have complementary inputs, but now you tell them, no, you're not going to get your four units credit for this carbon reduction that you jointly achieved. You're going to have to share that credit. You've actually suddenly given both firms less incentive to invest in these carbon reductions in the first place. So even though environmental scientists and economists would say double counting is really bad, if you actually want to give all the firms in the supply chain the right incentive, you might actually have to do double counting or triple counting to really incentivize them to make the reductions that they optimally should do. So where does this leave the regulator and are the regulations sophisticated enough to take these kinds of things into consideration? I don't think so. And you know, politically, given how challenging it seems to be in many settings to impose some sort of a carbon tax or carbon price, It's very unlikely that you could then convince people to say, not only are we going to do carbon tax and do so double and triple carbon taxes, that doesn't seem plausible. But it does suggest that if you're going to rely on carbon taxing as one of the mechanisms, you might have to actually have higher levels of tax than what would be considered, say, the socially optimal tax if every firm were completely independent. But this is just another example of how, in theory, we know the kinds of things that firms would need to do. But once you put yourself in the context of decision-making, behavioral science as individuals or at the firm level, the incentives and the the way in which you make decisions have a significant impact on what actually will happen in the end.
I think what's really interesting is the extraordinary complexity of all of this. And when we think about, well, let's get climate change under control, these are complexities that you simply don't think about. And it's very interesting to hear all of the things that are involved. Yeah, it's wonderful to see how much progress we've made just over the last decades, I guess, uh, on the environmental science and how much further we are now in understanding lots of environmental impacts and quantifying them. Now, if, if 30 years ago, if you said that companies would routinely be able to publish carbon footprints of their own operations and their entire supply chain, I think people would probably start laughing and saying, that, how can you possibly do that? You can't see carbon dioxide. How can you publish a credible carbon footprint? And now that's very routine. And you know, we're constantly making great progress there. But I think what we need to do more and more now is start thinking about, so now we have all this information, what do we do with it? How do we use it? How do we make sure that we make smart decisions with that kind of information? You know, there's lots of well-documented biases, fallacies, heuristics that we're subject to that behavioral scientists know very well. We need to start paying attention to those and making sure that when we're making big decisions in sustainability that we don't accidentally fall into one of these well-documented behavioral traps. So you said at the outset that alternatives assessment is relatively new, even though we have made a lot of progress. It sounds like we still have a lot of progress to be made. Yeah, that's right. And let me give you another example. If you're considering building a data center, we constantly need more data centers. But there's a fundamental trade-off in building data centers between energy and water. So you can have a data center that's very energy efficient just by using huge amounts of water for cooling. Or you can say, no, I don't want to use lots of water. And instead of that, you can use lots and lots of energy for refrigeration. So there's a fundamental energy water trade-off in data centers. So let's say that you're, say, a large company and you're considering a new location and a new data center, and you have this choice between the energy efficient one or the water efficient one. I can't tell you which is the best choice to make, but let's say that, say, half the people prefer one, half the people prefer the other. But now let's say that you add a third option to that set. So there's another possibility, which is also water efficient, but in terms of energy is even worse than the first one. So this new option is actually worse than the two that we looked at before. So nobody should pick that. And because it's worse than the other two, it shouldn't change anything at all. What turns out, though, is that if you add that to the choice set, it actually quite significantly changes the choice that people make. And now, if you add this water-efficient but even less energy-friendly data center, then more people than before will now pick that other water-efficient data center. Just because by adding this decoy option, it makes one of the other two options look more attractive by comparison. And again, we know this happens in behavioral science. These things have been documented for decades. But when we're collecting and compiling and presenting information around environmental and social impacts, we tend not to think very much about what are the, uh, the human effects and these behavioral effects that come into play when people are making decisions. So I think that's where, in the field of sustainability, we still have a lot of work to do. So what is the work and, and where do you think are the uh, ways to make improvements? So a lot of it will come down to people in different disciplines working together and, and the people who are actually collecting all this information and, and coming up with life cycle assessment studies, uh, getting better estimates of environmental impacts, uh, having them actually see how humans make decisions and what are the shortcuts and biases and context effects and all sorts of things that come into play so that they have a better understanding of how is that information going to be used. And then maybe instead of spending a lot of time coming up with a slightly better estimate of some, some impact, maybe instead of that, we need to spend that time thinking about what are the various ways in which the information that we have could be presented. There's all sorts of things that behavioral scientists could recommend about how you do and don't introduce problems to people. 
We've been talking about trade-offs, and I'm fascinated by what you said about data centers because we accumulate a lot of the data in order to improve the environment. Yet, if there's a lot of waste in the data centers, we're counterproductive in that respect as well. Absolutely. Sometimes people refer to big data as the new oil, and to some extent that's true in multiple ways. When oil came along 100 plus years ago, of course, that had huge impacts for the economy, and it became really sort of almost the thing that powered the economy. And to some extent, you could argue that big data is what's powering the economy today. But the other side of that analogy also works. That turned out that oil had huge negative externalities that we didn't appreciate at that time. And with big data, we're starting to see the same thing, that you now you get data spills, which have tremendous social impacts on people's lives. You now, if your identity gets stolen, if your identity gets stolen and your credit suddenly gets affected, but these can be life-altering outcome for those people. There's tremendous uh, social costs of data spills and the environmental cost. If you think of every data center, you look at it and you say basically 80% of that building is there to store data that's never going to be used, a tremendous amount of waste. So even though we look at data as something clean and you, and you can't see it, and the one little piece of data, the impacts are tiny, we're not talking about one little piece of data, of course, we're talking about vast amounts of data that are just growing at ridiculous rates. And it's the same with, um, with fossil fuels, that, that people often forget that when the internal combustion engine was introduced, it was actually a big environmental improvement. Uh, you know, this is work from a, a colleague and friend, David Kirsch, who studied the history of that. Before internal combustion engine, before cars, uh, the main mode of transportation was basically horses. So you imagine cities, Manhattan, London, whatever, with absolutely packed with horses and you, you can imagine what the streets look like. So compared to that, taking some horses off the road and, and introducing these brand new internal combustion engines was a huge step forward at that time. Now, of course, multiply that by uh, 5 billion of these internal combustion engines and now suddenly the situation looks very different. So, so very often with, with environmental and also social impacts, the things that can look really good at small scale today, they can have very significant negative impacts at some point down the road once we start talking about mass adoption. And that's going to happen. I don't think we can avoid that completely. But that's where things such as alternatives assessment and many of the other subsets of sustainability science come into play is just trying to prevent those kinds of substitutions and unanticipated negative externalities as much as we can. Could you elaborate a little bit on the issue of regulation and uh, how it comes about or ought to come about? It's a good question, but I'm always wary of referring to the research or the science as something that makes decisions. In sustainability, there's almost always just really hard trade-offs. And trade-offs are essentially political decisions, right? It could be political at the national level or political within a company, but it's not a scientific choice typically. So what, what the research and the science can do is be as thoughtful as possible about, look, here's all the things you need to know to make an informed decision. But I think it's, it's risky to expect or accuse the science of then actually making that decision. And, and we've seen a lot of that, of course, over the last two years with COVID. We often hear that the science says we need one regulation or another. How do you interpret that? So my interpretation of that is that the science typically doesn't say we need this regulation versus that one. What the science would say is, if you adopt this form of regulation, here's what we predict the range of outcomes could be. Uh, and if you adopt this other form of regulation, then we predict this set of outcomes. But then choosing between those two, I do not think is typically a scientific question. Now, it's very possible, and you see this increasingly often, this set of outcomes is so stark 
that essentially, just by looking at the science, you should say, okay, well, that's pretty suggestive that this regulation is required and that one's not going to work. But in the end, the actual choice I see is always a political choice. I'm a huge believer in the science and following the science, but I, uh, I wish people wouldn't so often say, you know, the science says that we should adopt this policy. I, I don't think the science typically says that. Well, Charles Corbett, it's fascinating to talk with you, uh, and this is the kind of research, it seems to me, that can be useful to both corporations that are trying to make decisions and to regulators who are trying to figure out how to accomplish various goals in the public interest. So thank you very much for being with us. Or thank you very much for the opportunity. Once again, our thanks to Professor Charles Corbett. I'm Warren Alney. This has been How the World Works from UCLA Anderson. Join us again.